Welcome to Lift Your Legacy. My name is Jacob Rupp, father, husband, and rabbi. And each week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you unlock your inner potential and create change that will impact the future. Thank you for listening, and let's get to it. Brian Keating, thank you so much for joining us today. Mazel tov on your book, Losing the Nobel Prize. Uh, it's an honor to have you here on the Lift Your Legacy podcast. Tell me a little bit about your background. My background, well, first I want to welcome you back to campus. It's Thank been a while much. since you were on this, uh, back in the hallowed halls of Tritonium. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, campus, and it's, it's quite lovely to be here, and I'm, I'm very honored that I've been here for coming up on 14 years. Can't believe it. So before I was at UCSD, I'm a professor of physics and astronomy in UCSD's uh, uh, Center for Astrophysics and Space Sciences. So I study uh, my, my group and my students and postdocs and so forth that study the universe. We look at the universe in all the different ways that you, can, you can't see with the human eye. So this ranges from looking at things using radio waves to infrared to even higher energy or lower energy types of signals that, the, uh, that basically we're blind to. And it's kind of interesting to uh, in include this sense of augmented reality into humanity's uh, quest to understand the cosmos. So that's what we do here. We, we try to un unravel the mysteries of the cosmos, and there's more than one mystery for sure that still remains. So tell me a little bit about how you got into that. When did you feel the calling to this specific level of science and how you, yeah. just your, your process? Yeah, well, I always wanted to make a lot of money. Great. And astronomy, I figured, was my ticket to get to there. Um, I started off as a kid when I was about 12 years old. I encountered uh, a site that I could not understand. I had never seen anything like it before. So I saw, I woke up in the middle of the night and I thought I left the light on in my bedroom. And I walked over to where the light was in the bedroom and it was off. And I looked out the window and oh my goodness, it was the moon. And the moon was so bright that night, I couldn't stop looking at it. If you've ever seen the moon close to where the horizon is, <clears throat> the, uh, the moon takes on a size and a distorted perception that otherwise you'd be, uh, you know, you'd be unable to explain. And at this age, about 12 or 13 years old, I had no idea what it was. And furthermore, there was this really bright star next to the moon. I'd never seen anything next to the moon. I thought it was, you know, Southwest flight, you know, 462. But, but actually it turned out that it was a planet. And, you know, this is before Google ever existed. This is in the late 1980s. Um, and I wanted to understand more about it. And to do that required a lot of effort. You had to actually go to a library, wait for a newspaper to come out, get a book. You know, they still have these things called bookstores. Who does that? Right, <laughs> and, right. uh, nowadays, you know, my, my uh, five and six-year-olds, you know, they can look it up faster than it took me by, by uh, a, a mile. So uh, I ended up researching and I found it was the planet Jupiter, <clears throat> which, uh, you know, which you'll know is the planet where they speak Hebrew because it's, it's <laughs> Jupiter. So when, when I... When How I, did I never <laughs> think about that? That was... Yeah, that's, that's good. Uh, that's a patented line. It's good. Uh, when I went out to, fi to find out more about it, the more I realized I learned, the more I wanted to learn. And I actually had no idea that you could be an astronomer. I thought it was like being a wizard or something. Like, who would pay you to be, you know, an astronomer? I would do something like that for free. And by the way, don't tell Jerry Brown that. He's my boss. He'll he'll probably take you up on it. But um, but it's just the most wonderful profession to be able to, to get paid, to understand, to think about how the universe really works, and to do it with a crowd of, you know, brilliant uh, tritons and, and other people from around the world to really comprehend what the universe is all about. What's it made of? Where did it come from? Uh, are there other universes? All, all these questions that you know you used to think about when you were a kid, or, or maybe even college might, might be the last time that most normal people think about, well, what was the you know, universe like before the Big Bang? Questions like that, the big metaphysical questions. We get paid to, to think about those kind of things and try to answer them. That's what's so exciting about it. And 
kind of going along that you had a spiritual experience and a journey with your own Jewish growth that was fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I say to people it's rare to find somebody who's so, you know actively involved in an Orthodox Jewish synagogue who, uh, you know, his former life was as an altar boy. Uh, and furthermore, who never had a bar mitzvah, but was instead an altar boy at the age of most men, Jewish men are, are getting their uh, study for their bar mitzvah. Um, yeah, so I was I was born Jewish. Both my parents are Jewish, uh, but I ended up having a, a conversion to Catholicism, Roman Catholicism, when my mother remarried, uh, and I took to it immediately. I really loved the the uh, the dignity of it, the the humor of it, the huge you know rollicking parties, uh, and you know to be honest with you, you know Christmas really was a big selling point over looking you know over Hanukkah at the time I remember getting you know I was I was blessed to be able to celebrate both for a while you know I'd get Hanukkah presents I'd get a, a pair of slacks you know some trousers and then you know for Christmas I get a matchbox cars evil Knievel says it was just unbelievable um, and so you know when you're a kid those kind of things appeal to you but um, uh, and I still have great respect and and and, and, and warm uh, adoration for my friends of all faiths I actually that's one of the best parts about being um, an academician as I am, and that you know, I have uh, more students from from Pakistan or from or, or, or from uh, France or something like that. You'd never meet people like that. I have a student from Thailand. I had a student from from China. It's just unbelievable how how fortunate you are to get be able to meet these people. Having that uh, kind of a you know abstract raising you know my 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 own kind of encounters with spirituality taking the torturous route that they did take. Uh, gives me a little bit of empathy to understand how other people coming to you know our our culture perhaps perceive things. But yes, yeah, so it was a sort of a, a an, an interesting path that that I've taken to get to the point where you know I consider myself uh, you know, or, ortho uh, orthophilic that I I go to an Orthodox uh, synagogue and my kids go to Orthodox schools. But but on the same hand, uh, you know we're still growing, still developing, still learning about the the overall um, aspects of, of the religion and spirituality in general. I think it's, it's something just like with the astrophysics, you never stop learning. I never want to stop learning. Do you find there's a certain resistance or skepticism that your colleagues have for you as a believing, clearly practicing, practicing mm -hmm. you know, I guess you call it theologian or an, or an orthodox person that it's known that you have a uh, I think so. in God? I think I think that they 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 do only to the extent not that it's necessarily so rare, but I think a lot of scientists are loath to admit that they themselves uh, are practitioners of religion. It just so happens that religion is called atheism. Um, but I believe, you know, that that if if a person actively pursues uh, a belief, you know, and 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 promulgating the idea that there is no God, there's nothing transcendent, there's nothing spiritual. I think that person is just as dogmatic, as just just as um, you know, orthodox with with a small O, as as any fervent religious person. And so. That, I mean that that's yeah. so that's 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 a wild statement. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. how does that go over? Do you, that, that that I think that for the majority of the scientific community, they feel themselves to be quote enlightened yes. and not in need of these you know old fashioned dogmas that you, oftentimes people say was created out of fear or whatever it might be. Right. So how does how does that work? So when right. you're, so in the book, I, I describe some of these some of these uh, um, quests to, to to really unlock these greater mysteries. So I actually consider myself you know if you were to classify a person into atheist you know, agnostic or, you know, believer, I think I'm a devout practicing agnostic. 
which is to say that, you know, if you look at somebody who is um, agnostic, typically, they won't go to synagogue or they won't go to church. Or they, so they're functionally equivalent to an atheist. So there's you know, no way that an alien who's intelligent looking at those two people, an atheist and an agnostic who doesn't do anything, they couldn't really differentiate between those two. Could we clarify when you yeah. say atheist and agnostic, what, what do you... Atheist, my definition is an atheist is someone who is uh, convinced of the lack of God, the reality that there is no God, that there is... Um, that there is by lack of evidence for God that there is no God. So they infer right. from, from the lack of proof, if you will, that there is no God. But that's intrinsically not a scientific statement. Scientists like me should not be driven towards proving or uh, or disproving, say. But, but really, yeah, I mean, disproving is better than proving, right? Because when you try to prove something, you get hung up on psychologically, and scientists are just as subject to psychological predilections as are the lay people. You get functionally tied into... Um, how can I further improve this preconceived notion that I have? And it's afflicted everybody in science, from Galileo to Einstein to Newton, um, all of whom you know had different levels of religiosity, by the way. Um, and the, the the concept for me that you know that there's no God is really you know kind of inconsistent with a scientific perspective on on reality, because there's a, a, a true scientist uh, when it all comes down to it won't say that there is no God. They'll say, I don't believe there's evidence for God, or I don't believe that there is proof of God. But when you say that, it's a big difference than I know there's no God. You go from being an atheist to being an agnostic, which I think is a very reasonable place to be, an agnostic. Um, but I, as I said, you should strive to, if you are agnostic, as, as I am in a sense, that you should strive to differentiate yourself from the atheists who don't do anything, who don't practice anything. Because how do you expect yourself to be enlightened? And, and I always say, you know, most Jewish men, um, you know, who may be, you know, not members of your demographic and your audience on this podcast, but they, they sort of lose their religion at age 13. They go and they, they have their bar mitzvot. And they say, well, now I'm graduated from this. Now I'm kind of, you know, released from the sentence that I've had for 13 years or whatever since I became conscious and aware of life, you know, five, six, seven years. And they, they forevermore relinquish any um, study, any practice, any, any um, diligence towards pursuing that. But I always say to the same people, say a devout atheist, who's, you know, born Jewish, uh, you know, in the Jewish, uh, you know, culturally Jewish, perhaps, but isn't militant, you know, atheist by his own proclamation, I always say to people like that, I mean, you wouldn't expect, you wouldn't uh, accept a proof about the laws of nature or the physics that you study in astronomy or the cosmos or quantum field theory from a 13-year-old, but effectively they're accepting the rejection of, of God and the atheism that they've inherited when they last thought about it, which was at age 13. So that that's a tremendous idea because one of the things that we oftentimes come across is when you see a Stephen Hawking or a Richard Dawkins coming out as their as their atheists, because they're scientists, mm -hmm. they're afforded a greater, I guess you could say a greater level of, of respect, uh, yeah. respect mm -hmm. and, authority. and authority. Right. Yeah. But but you would say that's not necessarily the case. That we can trust yeah. them in their specific fields. Exactly. Right. But yeah. the God field is, is they're just like everybody else. People always ask me, you know, well, what do you, you know, you're an astrophysicist. What do you think about climate change? As if it matters what I think about climate change. You know, they never come up to me and say, well, what do you think about the, you know, 4.2 liter engine in my car? I don't know. I'm not going to touch that thing. You know, that's uh, way beyond my pay grade as a simple astrophysicist. Um, so people have this expectation that, that authority trumps everything. And in this sense, when you look up at a Stephen Hawking, Hawking and you ask, you know, and you seek guidance from him, uh, you have to accept everything 
if, if you're going to, you know, it's, it's sort of all or nothing. If you're going to use them as your physics guide and your spiritual guide, I think that's very dangerous. Hmm. Especially if you investigate, you know, if you investigate anyone's life in great detail, you'll find things that you may or may not be, be comfortable with, hmm. especially in this day and age. But I would say for Stephen Hawking, you know, I, I always say I don't use, you know, a brief history of time, his monumental, still, you know, number 10 bestseller in science, uh, you know, 30 years after it's been published the first time. Uh, I never would never use that as a, as a guide to raise my children. Um, and similarly, I would never use the first 35 verses in the Torah and the Bible in the Old Testament, uh, which is the only set of verses that concern the Big Bang, what I study, the cosmology, the origin of the universe, the evolution of the universe. I would never use that as a science book. You know, if you if you were to pick up a book. And it said, you know, uh, NBA superstars on it. And then the whole book was about the Jews in the NBA. I mean, there's like 0.1% of the Torah is about the Big Bang. 0.1% of the NBA uh, are, you know, comprised of Jews. Uh, so you take this, this, this small aspect of it and you ascribe to this great uh, logical extension that, that everything that flows from it has to explain everything. There, as Stephen Jay Gould, another lapsed Jew, but but a, a very deep thinker in some and 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 in most ways, he called these non-overlapping magisteria. In mm -hmm. other words, religion and science were at best they could be allied in the sense, as Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi Sachs, talks about. But in other sense, they could be just viewed as separate. You know, just as you view your children have a different relationship with you than your wife uh, or your friends, um, and they they're not. You don't try to make your children into your friends, and or you shouldn't. And in, in that sense, I think that you can you can uh, extract from each one's majesteria, each one's domain, you can look at it and appraise it within that context. Mm -hmm. And I think oh, it becomes very dangerous when you try to blend these two different subjects together. That's fascinating. Okay, so now let's get to the book. Why the book? What's, what did you feel that you were contributing to? Is it the scientific community? Is it the community at large by this particular book yeah so we sort of touched on this we talked about authority so every every four years you'll see this um you'll see these letters from uh all these nobel prize winning physicists that tell you which which specifically which democrat you should vote for for president so you know i've never seen them come out for Republican. i can never say any of these things but you're you're okay good. well yeah you're, i mean you shouldn't try to attempt yeah. to understand my politics you know that's more complicated than, than cosmology uh but in in any event um, or they'll come out and they'll be for the Iran deal or against the Iran deal or for GMOs or again. So they'll use these these you know these intellects in their domain in the domain of, of physics in my case or you know astrophysics a subset of my field or in you know biology chemistry what have you. And there is this authority that they will have that is sort of um, in my mind it's it's it, it is a question as to you know what level you you put these people up to. What level of hero worship should you have, and is appropriate uh, in a domain where, and in a field where, you know, the, the 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 chances of winning a prize like the Nobel Prize are so minute. Like you would never look up to, say, a, uh, a Hollywood Oscar winner and say this person is going to tell me how to live my life. And and it made me think, well, why is this award so esteemed? Why is it the most esteemed? most prized, highest accolade, not just in science, not just in literature or peace, etc., but of any kind, of any kind in history of the planet. 
So I started to wonder why that was. Is that not, that that's indeed the case? I think it is. Well, I mean, I think that, that there's no close second. I right. think you know that used to be that awards like say the Pulitzer Prize or something like this, they had the greatest um, they had the greatest impact, and people would would be you know there was always net recognition of things like that. Nowadays, not so much. Right. They've been diluted. Oscars, you know, there, there's a great deal that goes into Oscar that that you know has no uh, applicability without uh, outside the domain of, of say Hollywood, and and most you know science and intellect have somewhat mild derision towards Hollywood. Right. I think they see it as frivolous. Uh, although I claim in the book that you can actually learn a lot from Hollywood in terms of the way that they sure do know how to give out awards. <laughs> um, but in the Nobel Prize, I saw it as sort of the world's most sacred cow. And literally in my in my field, I remember reading a, a review of a book about the Nobel Prize in the sciences. And the reviewer, Helga Krag, who's an eminent historian of science in, in, in Denmark, he said something like that the author who wrote the book about the Nobel Prize uh, was understandably perplexed as to why the Nobel Prize has so much allure, even outside of science. But he said in his review that he, the author was unable to come up with a reason for it. And I started to think about it and drawing connections and parallels to it into my faith. And I saw what I think is an explanation for why it's so, it's so enduring and why it's so lustrous. And I think that reason comes down to a discovery that I made during the writing of this book, um, which was that the Nobel Prize has become a, a type of religion. And I have a lot of evidence for that in the book, but I'll say just a couple of things here that, you know, all religions have certain features in common. So religions need some sort of, of high priesthood, some sort of, of organization that determines who the hierarchical structure is comprised of. Uh, they have to have a a cadre of holy people, mostly usually men, uh, which a certain Nobel Prize certainly does have. Um, and those holy men become saints and beatified uh, throughout the religion. Uh, the, Nobel, the Nobel Prize has another feature uh, in common with that. Obviously, those people for the Nobel Prize are the laureates, the people who win it. The high priesthood is the committee that selects the ultimate deciders of who wins the Nobel Prize. These are a small group of mostly male Swedish scientists, uh, about 500 or so Swedish scientists, and uh, working in great secrecy and behind a lot of uh, uh, non-transparent policies and so forth. And uh, and then they, they also have to have things like a uh, you know, holy days. You know, we have holy days in Judaism. So there are holy days for the Nobel Prize. There's the what I call the call of revelation when the Nobel Prizes are announced each year, which are watched by 100 million people around the world uh, on YouTube and elsewhere. And then there's the feasts. There's a feast of coronation when these winners sit down uh, to a dinner uh, where they eat reindeer and all sorts of exotic food dressed in mandatory clothing. You have to wow. wear these clothes when you win a Nobel Prize. Um, and, and then the last thing that most religions have are some kind of um, catechism or, you know, saying or faith, you know, for Jews, Shema Yisrael, uh, for, uh, for, for, um, for Catholics, I remember, if I remember correctly from my altar boy days, you know, it's Our Father, you know, or Hail Mary, something like some catechism, some sign. And then there have to be some kind of icon, some kind of symbol of the religion. Judaism might be the, the menorah or the, or the Ten Commandments, not necessarily we pray to them or something like that, but they're holy and they're icons. Um, in, in Christianity, crucifix, or yeah. in, Judea, in, in Catholicism, it's a crucifix. So what is the Nobel Prize? Well, obviously, it's this medallion over here. You know, it's this lustrous golden medallion that you literally bow down to, wow. to put on. And I remember writing the book and, and coming to this conclusion that it was having all these detrimental effects on science. It was distorting the perception of science by scientists and by the public in, in important ways. 
Um, and then, so I'd written... Because it stifled creativity or because it gave the power of science, which ultimately is supposed to be a, a you know, an, an objective, non-objective, you know, like look at the world. And here it's like making it very subjective right. to this group so of people. That, that, and that it takes away sort of the meritocratic aspects of science where science should be done, you know, regardless of, of race, creed, color, you know, uh, gender. And, and, and it's just not because of biases that are systematically ingrained in the Nobel Prize process that I outline here. Um, but, you know, moreover, you know, so so I had been I had been, you know, waging this kind of mental, you know, skirmishing in my head not to kill the Nobel Prize, not to crucify it, but to but to reform it and to make it better so that it doesn't distort the way that science gets done. It doesn't distort how science is perceived and it doesn't distort the ambitions of young scientists because I think that will be the death knell of science in America and mm. elsewhere. And the Nobel Prize has huge, tremendous influence if, on if, science. You're saying if you would just pull that whole institution out, people would just stop working so hard to try to achieve as scientists. I think there are a lot of scientists who, who um, would deny it, but I think that they are driven by the dreams of winning the Nobel Prize. I certainly was. Yeah. Um, you know, so I have a, a scene in the book where um, you know, I've been writing the book for a year. It took me a year to write it, sitting down and, and writing it. You know, having little kids running around is not so conducive to writing a book. Note to future self. <laughs> um, but uh, but I've been writing this book. And I'm railing against it and trying to reform it and being frustrated and finding all these instances of uh, you know unjust decisions that were made, ruling out people that deserve it. Deep, rich anti-Semitism in the beginning, and now it's very sexist and a lot. Of, you know, so these threads that just haven't gone away. Frustrating, and yet, and then in May of last year, um, uh, a Nobel Prize winner came back to UC San Diego. I say back because he was a professor here. He was later stolen by Princeton University. His name's Duncan Holliday, wonderful ge British gentleman. You know, just just the most lovely, uh, brilliant person you'd ever want to meet. And he came back to UC San Diego to give our physics colloquium, which is where physicists go and they give a, a speech about what their research and, and their recent findings have been about. He chose to give a talk um, about about the whole Nobel Prize that he had mm -hmm. won and why he won it, what it was like to go to Sweden, uh, what it was like when when the Swedish media tried to describe his most incredibly abstruse description of <laughs> the physics that he won the Nobel Prize, which I even wrestled with um, uh, trying to understand. So uh, this was wonderful gentleman, and he brought his actual Nobel Prize. He saw it. He brought it. And so here I was. Yeah. I'm writing this book against it. And and uh, and all these people were thronging around it, kissing it, touching it, yeah. uh, literally worshiping, posing for a selfie with it. And then Unfortunately, you know, I have a picture of myself in the book doing the same, you know, right. not kissing it. You know, I didn't try to steal it, uh, but I was, you know, posing for a selfie with it. And I thought back to the episode of the golden calf in, 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 uh, in the book of Exodus. And I always thought it was kind of ridiculous, you know, how these Jews, you know, who are supposedly smart people, right? We come out of the desert, we come out of the, you know, Egypt, we see these ultra, you know, just incomprehensible miracles uh, that took place, you know, splitting of the sea, all these devastating plagues, 40 days later, whatever it is, uh, you know, much better than I do. They come out. Boom, they worship a golden calf. Not only a golden calf, but one that they made themselves. Because yeah. the, the, the portion, you know, Aaron put in the gold into the into this fire and out came a calf. You know, it's their gold. And I was like, how can these, you know, fools, you know, worship right. something that they right. themselves made and call it, this is our God. And I, but, but, you know, until you realize that there is something intrinsically innate in every human being to have a religion and to worship something. 
and to idolize, literally idolize things. I mean, we have a show called American Idol. Uh, you, there's a deep human urge to worship things, and scientists are human. And this notion that we're above it all, I think, is 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 inaccurate. And I think even myself, I was afflicted by the same noblism. I call it this this religion, this desire to to want to hold people up to greater authority, uh, in a way as they do to settle things, so that we can have psychological comfort um, that these things are done and taken care of for us. And I think that's that's an intrinsic need. And I say, you know, as well, often uh, you know people are very reluctant to give up their their religion. I remember we were walking to uh, to synagogue the other day on Shabbat, and these very nice, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses came up to us, and they had some literature. Oh. That, you know, I'm very, I'm very happy uh, with my current choice of religion. Right. As right. I think most people, if you have a religion, uh, and I think atheists are very comfortable with their choice of religion. I think people that worship the Nobel Prize are also very comfortable with it. So I don't expect to make many friends by writing it, um, uh, but I want to make people think that they assume themselves to be free of. Of theism, but I think they can be just as subject to kind of the irrational aspects that they decry in, in the faithful. So, do you expect a, a big backlash from the the writing of this book? Because again, the the the, the irony isn't lost. The very target of, of the criticism is going at those who assume that they don't fall into these categories. Right. So, I, I think there will, there will always be those that 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 have um, that that are uncomfortable with the notion of of not being an atheist. I think it's part of their definition. As I said, I think that they are comfortable with their religion and they want to keep it. And that religion just happens to be atheism. I mean, some of them, I've actually spoken, there's a wonderful organization here called the Sunday Assembly. They have it in many big cities around the country. And I, and I, and I really like it. What do they try to do? Well, they have a sermon. They have singing. They have um, they have food. They do service works. But they're all atheists or they're all humanists is mm -hmm. the new term is. Uh, and they invited me to speak twice to their great credit. And and we had a wonderful conversation about issues raised, you know, that I raised in the book and elsewhere. Um, and, uh, and and I think that that shows you that there is this there is there is a place, you know, for for good religion, whether it's good atheism or good Judaism or, or good uh, Islam. There is a place for, for that in a modern society. I think it grounds people. I think people miss that. Um, but will people who are devout militant atheists, you know, be swayed by the arguments in the book? I hope so. I mean, I hope that there's enough research and sort of 300 footnotes in the book. Um, you know, the index is, uh, is you know, a dozen pages long. Uh, I did a lot of research. And it's also, you know, it's also a book about the human side of science and, and, and um you know, that science is done by people and over and over again from the greatest scientist arguably in history, Galileo, up through Newton, up through uh, Hubble, and, and even to the day our great modern physicists, Roger Penrose and others that are, are so brilliant and how they've wrestled with the notion of whether or not humanity is in some sense special mm -hmm. and that we are either, you know, a, a really functionally important part of the universe or whether we're just as, you know, people like Lawrence Krauss describe us as cosmic pollution. And I think the way that you answer that question has ultimate ramifications as to your meaning and how you derive meaning from the work that you do. Two final questions. Do, do you think that there's something unique about the time that we live that has produced this kind of uh, this kind of culture? Meaning that have we really grown that much since the since the old days with this need to deify various things, or is there something unique about our culture today where we're, will, will, will humanity ever kind of relapse this need for 
for, I guess, deifying certain aspects? I don't think so. I mean, I think that that is deeply ingrained in who we are. Uh, and, and again, I remember reading, you know, when I first came back to Judaism as a, as a returnee, as a Baal Teshuva, as the word is, is, is coined, um, that, you know, it was really incomprehensible to me to think, well, how could, I would never be tempted to bow down to an idol. But people make things into idols all the time. Money is a, is a classic one. Um, you know, college education. You know, and here I am, a college professor, right. saying that I don't believe it should be as held in the highest esteem. You know, as as being a, a good person and having good character traits. Um, I don't think that it will go away. I think it is part of, and I think it's a wonderful part of who we are. And I think just as you can you know, benefit from subduing the demons that might plague you if it's alcohol or food or, or gambling or something like that. By overcoming those urges and recognizing those proclivities, I think that you derive strength from that. And, you know, from my perspective, that that is the most, you know, that's one of the most telling elements of the truth, if you will, of, of the, you know, of the spiritual perspective. That that there are there is wisdom to get from a book like this, which is a scientific book, um, but you know meant for a popular audience. But uh, but there's also wisdom to get from a book, uh, a spiritual book as well. Whether it's the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Quran, there's wisdom. And you, as a scientist, I you know the most important uh, aspect of my papers when I write a paper, and I and I um, and the the most important part of this, which is taught to me by a mentor of mine. It was a Russian Jewish immigrant who had to flee the Soviet Union in the, in the late 1980s. He said the word scientist in Russian literally translates into one who was taught. Taught, meaning mm. that you can't be a scientist unless somebody taught you. So we have a great ethical uh, imp implication that we have to teach others. And that's part of our legacy, if you will, that my job is to teach others. Conversely, I would not like it if my you know, contributions and my legacy from before were forgotten. And I make the point in the book that Alfred Nobel had a legacy too, and it's been overlooked. And I think that's a great crime against his memory. But getting back to you know to, to whether or not people can can get over this proclivity to worship idols and and so forth, I, I hope that people will at least take the time and consider whether or not their beliefs are motivated by a psychological need to believe what they believe. And I think most people have that, but they don't know that they have that. And that's that's a dangerous thing in science, and it's a dangerous thing in, in, in life in general as well. And not to not to not to close on a on a practical point, but but how does one go about? And and I think it's a fascinating question mm -hmm. from your specific you know vantage point. Sure. How does one go about kind of trying to figure out where they are biased towards looking mm. for certain questions versus just you know? Yeah. So I I always say, especially in. So, you know, I upbraid scientists a lot. You can probably tell. Like, I, I, I tease them a lot. It's always good-natured. You know, I've had many, you know, devout atheists over to the, for Shabbat. I've taken them to synagogue. You know, my father was a devout atheist. You know, he always used to say, well, I don't believe in God, but I believe in Satan because he made you believe in God. <laughs> <laughs> but but I want you to know that my opinion and that, that scientists aren't the only ones who have uh, heavy, you know, lifting to do. And that to lift your legacy and your uh, as your... Uh, wonderfully titled podcast suggests that there's an obligation on the faithful too. And that obligation doesn't end by just learning the Talmud or the New Testament or the Old Testament um, or what have you. It actually, I believe the most direct path to the mind of God, if you are a believer, is to study science. I think that's the like that's God's cliff notes. It's his it's his way of strengthening faith. If you can see the world the way a scientist does, even in just a little tiny approximate way, 
you'll see different ways in your life which things will seem much more miraculous, elevated, and holy in your own life when you see the, the amazement and the way that the world is, is assembled, if you believe, or formed, if you like. Um, and there's great many mysteries that we don't understand. And for a religious person to say, ah, I'm not a numbers person, I'm not a scientist, uh, I think they're doing themselves and their faith a great disservice. I call you know, studying science and, and Judaism you know, faith vitamins or Amuna vitamins. Hmm. Because by understanding it, you can gain this amazing perspective when you look at a rainbow or you look at something. Like my children, if you ask them, you say, like, who made the rainbow? They don't say, oh, God made the rainbow. They break it down. They go, well, it's made of water droplets and water droplets scatter light. And light is composed of many different frequencies and those frequencies come together. And, and they understand that. They keep going. I'm like, well, who made the water molecules? Oh, well, that's made of hydrogen oxygen. Well, who made the hydrogen? And you can keep going back and back and back. And you can come back and you'll always end up at the same place. Wow. The Big Bang, the origin of the universe. And so the question is, who made the Big Bang? And that's an open question. Fantastic. Okay, Brian Keating, the book is going to be available where? Tell it's, us about uh, it. It's going to be available everywhere that books are sold, online, uh, in bookstores, um, and uh, I'll be doing some events uh, to promote it. So. Fantastic. Well, you know, absolutely. Losing the Big Bang Losing by... the Nobel Prize. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Losing the Nobel Prize with Brian Keating. Thank you so much. There you have it, folks. Another inspiring episode. If you enjoyed this, I ask you to please share this with your friends and to like us over on Rabbi Rupp through Facebook or on YouTube. And the more that we're able to get these important messages out, the more that we can really make an impact in the world. So I encourage you, please, to stay tuned. Uh, we have a ton of amazing speakers coming up and also to tell your friends about it. Thank you very much.